Chapter 10 of Where Love Is by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 10 Two Idols. Jimmy was trudging along the undulating high road that leads from Dieppe to the little village of Berneval, very hot, very dusty, very thirsty, and very contented. He carried a stick and a little black bag. His content proceeded from a variety of causes. In the first place, it was a glorious August day, drenched with sunshine and with deep blue ether, and the smiling plain of Normandy rolled before him a land of ripening orchards and lazy pastures. He had been longing for the simple beauty of sun and sky and green trees, and for the homely sights and sounds of country things, and now he had his fill. Secondly, Aline was having a much-needed holiday. She had been growing a little pale and languid, he thought, in London, after a year confined administering to his selfish wants. She was enjoying herself, too, and the few days she had already spent in the sea air had brought the blood to her cheeks again. Thirdly, he was free for the moment from everyday cares. A dealer had fallen from heaven into his studio and paid money down for the copyright of two of his worst pictures. Fourthly, he had definitely received the commission for the portraits of the Princess of Heron Rothbeck. Her Serene Highness and her tutelary Duchess had paid their visit, expressed themselves delighted with his work, the Duchess especially commending the portrait of the hapless Mrs. Marmaduke Hewson, and had driven away in a most satisfactory condition of serenity and graciousness. Jimmy was happy. What could man want more? In addition to all these blessings, Norma had written to him from Lord Monsey's place in Scotland a letter apropos of nothing, merely expressive of goodwill and friendliness, and he had received it that morning. He had never seen her handwriting before. Bold, incisive, distinguished, it seemed to compliment his conception of the radiant lady, and in a foolish way he tried to harmonise the ink-marks with the curves of her proud lips, the setting of her eyes, and the poise of her queenly head. The dreariness of a rainy afternoon with all the men and half the women away on the grass moor had been, she said, her excuse for writing. She sketched various members of the house-party with light satiric touches, notably one Theodore Weaver, an American, whose sister had married an impecunious and embarrassing cousin of the Duchess of Wiltshire. He was building himself a palace in Fifth Avenue, wrote Norma, and had been buying pictures in Europe to decorate it with. Now he was anxious to purchase a really decorative wife. Morland was expected in a few days, and she would be glad when he appeared upon the scene. She did not say why, but Jimmy naturally understood that her heart was yearning for the presence of the man she loved. "'I have very little to say that can interest you,' she concluded, "'but you can say many things to interest me.' This letter is purely selfish, a mere minnow, after all, that I use as bait. So Jimmy walked along the dusty road, thinking out an answer that could bring comfort to the hero pining for her Leander, thinking also of Aline and revelling in the sunshine. He delighted, like a child, in all he saw. He stopped before the red, gold, and green paradise of an orchard and feasted upon its colour. He lingered in talk with a tiny girl driving a great brown cow, asked her its age, how many calves it had had, its name, and whether she were not afraid it would mistake her for a blade of grass and bite her. The little girl scoffed at the possibility. She could drive three cows, and if it came to that, a bull. Some me bit, she said. Whereupon he put a couple of sous in her hand, and went on his way. 
Presently he sat down on the rough wooden bench in front of a wayside café and drank cider from an earthenware bowl, and played with a mongrel puppy belonging to the establishment. When the latter had darted off to bark amid the cloud of dust and petroleum fumes left by a passing motor-car, Jimmy, sipping his second bowl of sour cider in great content, re-read the precious letter, filled his pipe, and reflected peacefully on the great harmony of things. The hopelessness of his own love for Norma struck no discord. For Stephen, so closely connected with the life of St. Catherine of Siena, did not love with less hope or more devotion. He paid the few coppers for his reckoning, took up his stick and little black bag, and trudged on, refreshed. And as he neared Berneval, the expectation of Aline's welcome gladdened him. He had rented for the month a cottage with a straggling piece of ground behind, from an artist friend whose possession it was. The friend had fixed the figure absurdly low. The modest living under Aline's experienced management was cheap, and the bonat tout faire cooked divinely for a few halfpence a day. By a curious coincidence, Mr. Antony Merriweather had also pitched upon Berneval as a summer resting-place. He had come on business, he gave out, and every morning saw him issue from the hotel by the beach, armed with easel and camp-stool and the rest of the landscape painter's paraphernalia, and every evening saw him smoking cigarettes on Jimmy's veranda. Whether the hours of sunshine saw him consistently hard at work, Jimmy was inclined to doubt. He certainly bathed a great deal, and ran about with a lean a great deal, and Jimmy read the pair moral lessons on the evil effects of idleness. But Tony was a fresh-minded boy. His ingenuous conversation provided Jimmy with much entertainment, and his presence on their holiday gave him the satisfaction of feeling that Aline had someone of her own age to play with. The ramshackle vehicle, half-diligence, half-omnibus, that plies between Berneval and Dieppe, passed him with great cracking of whip and straining of rusty harness, and out huis from the driver, just as he entered the village. It was late afternoon, and the trim white and green of the place was bathed in mellow sunshine. The short-cut home lay up a lane and through the churchyard, a cluster of grey slabs around a little grey church, and many of the slabs bore the story of the pitiless sea, how Jean-Marie Dulac, many years ago, was drowned at the age of nineteen, and how Jacques Lemaire perished in a storm, for it has been from time immemorial a tiny village of fisher-folk, and every family has given of its own to the waves. The pathos of the simple legends on the stones always touched him as he walked by, and now he paused to decipher some moss-grown letters of fifty years ago. He stooped, made out the same sad tale, moralised a little thereon, and rose with a sigh of relief to greet the sunshine and the fair earth. But the sight that suddenly met his eyes banished a dead fisherman, hungry sea, and sunny tree-tops from his mind. It was a boy and a girl very close together, his arm about her waist, her head upon his shoulder, walking by the little church. Their backs were towards him. He stared open-mouthed. "'God bless my soul!' said he in amazement. Then he dropped his stick, which clattered upon a gravestone. The foolish pair started to the sound, assumed a correct attitude with remarkable swiftness, and turning, recognised Jimmy. Tony Merriweather, who was a fair youth, grew very red and looked sheepish. Aline awaited events demurely with downcast eyes. Jimmy pushed his old Homburg hat to the back of his head, and in two or three strides confronted them. He tried to look fiercely at Tony. The young man drew himself up. "'I have asked Aline to marry me, sir,' he said frankly. "'I was going to speak to you about it.' "'Good Lord!' 
said Jimmy helplessly. "'We can't marry just yet,' said Tony. "'But I hope you will give your consent.' Jimmy looked from one to the other. "'Why didn't you let me know of this state of things before?' "'I haven't done anything underhand. I, I thought you guessed,' said Tony. "'And you, Aline?' She stole a shy glance at him. "'I wasn't quite sure of it until now,' she replied. And then she blushed furiously and ran to Jimmy's arms. "'Oh, Jimmy, dear, don't be cross.' "'Cross, my child?' he said. The world of tender reproach in his tone touched her. The ready tears started. "'You were an angel, Jimmy?' The hand that was on her shoulder patted it comfortingly. "'No, dear, I'm a blind elderly idiot. Oh, Lord, Tony, I hope you feel infernally ashamed of yourself.' "'As Tony says, we shan't be able to get married for a long, long time,' said Aline, by way of consolation. "'So for years and years we'll go on just the same way.' "'I only ask you to consent to our engagement, sir,' said Tony diplomatically. "'I'm quite willing to wait for Aline as long as you like.' The abandonment of Jimmy by Aline had been the subject of the last half-hour's discussion between the lovers. The thought of Jimmy alone and helpless appalled her. She was a horrid, selfish wretch, she had informed Tony, for listening to a word he said. How could Jimmy live by himself? She shuddered at the dismal chaos of the studio, the gaping holes in his socks, the impossible meals, the fleecing of him by every plausible beggar in frock-coat or rags, the empty treasury. He needed more care than a baby. She would marry Tony some day, because her head was full of him, and because she had let him kiss her, and had found a peculiar dreamy happiness during the process, and because she could not conceive the possibility of marrying anyone else. But she was more than content to leave the date indefinite. Perhaps, in the stretch of eons between now and then, something would happen to release her from her responsibilities. She had made the position luminously clear to Mr. Merriweather before she consented to be foolish and walk about with her head on his shoulder. "'No, until Jimmy gets properly suited,' she said, quickly following Tony's last remark. "'My dear foolish children,' said Jimmy, "'you'd better get married as soon as ever you can keep the wolf from the door. What on earth is the good of waiting till you're old? Get all the happiness you can out of your youth, and God bless you!' The young man bowed his head. "'I will give my life to her.' Jimmy touched him on the arm, waved his hand around, indicating the little grey church, the quiet graves. "'This is not the place where a man should say such a thing lightly,' he said. "'I am not the man to say such a thing lightly in any place,' retorted the youth, with spirit. Jimmy nodded approvingly. "'My dear,' he said to Aline, "'that is the way I like to hear a man talk.' He turned and collected the fallen stick and the black bag which he deposited by the side of the slab. He gone into Dieppe that morning partly for the sake of the walk, and partly to purchase some odds and ends for the house. Aline, not trusting to his memory, had given him a list of items with the directions attached as to the places where he was to procure them, so that when it came to pepper, he should seek it at a grocery and not at a milliner's establishment. Now, without saying a word, he opened the bag and rummaged among its queer contents, which Aline regarded with some twinges of a tender conscience. She ought to have gone into Dieppe herself, and made her purchases like a notable housewife, instead of sending Jimmy and passing the day in selfish love-making. The twinge grew sharper when Jimmy at last fished out a little cardboard box and put it in her hands. "'At any rate, I can give you an engagement present before Tony,' he said with a laugh. 
It was only an old filigree silver waist buckle he had picked up at a curio shop in the town, but it was a gem of infinite value to the girl, for she knew that Jimmy's love went with it. She showed it to Tony Merriweather, who admired the workmanship. "'If you can give me anything I shall prize more, you will be a lucky fellow,' she said in a low voice. The three strolled quietly towards the cottage, and it was Jimmy's arm that Aline clung to, and Mr. Merriweather who carried the black bag. That night, after she had dismissed the young man, she sat a long time with Jimmy on the veranda, telling him in one shy breath of the wonder that had suddenly come into her life, and in the next that she would never leave him until he was rich and famous and able to live by himself. Jimmy, unguileful in the nature of men and maidens and the ways of this wicked world, kept on repeating like a refrain his formula of astonishment. "'It never entered my head, dear, that you two children would fall in love with one another.' "'You don't think I ought to have done it, do you, Jimmy?' she said at last. He broke into his happy laugh and kissed her. "'If you want to please me, you'll go on doing it,' he said. It was some time after he had gone to bed that sleep came. Yes, nature, the dear mother, had spoken, and who could gainsay her? A clean, bright, healthy English lad and a clean, bright, healthy English girl had read truth in each other's eyes. It was one of the sweet things in the world, for which we who live in the world should be thankful. The dimly-seen white curtains of his bed became gossamer veils that enveloped him with beauty. Now, on either side, his inner life was touched by the magic of romance, the fair dream of these two children, and the love of the other betrothed pair. It was on happy eyelids that sleep settled at last. Adeline, too, lay awake, her young cheeks burning at the delicious yet frightening memory of a kiss in the little churchyard, and her heart swelling at the thought of the infinite goodness of Jimmy. Meanwhile, unconscious of these idyllic happenings and romantic speculations, Norma was enjoying herself in her worldly way at Lord Monsey's place in Scotland. Lord Monsey, a dissipated young man who had lately come into the title, had married a well-to-do young woman in very smart society. Consequently, there was no lack of modern entertainment in the house. So modern was everything that the host had got down Mr. Joseph Ascherberg, the financier, to hold a roulette bank every night against all comers. But he took care that he himself, or his own confidential man, turned the wheel and spun the marble. Most of the people had unimaginative nicknames, the extremes of the submerged tenth and the upper ten thus curiously meeting. Lord Monty was called Muggins, his bosom friend, and as some whispered his arme damnée, Sir Calthrop Boyle, was alluded to as the Boiler, and Asherberg responded to the appellation of Freddy. There were also modern conveniences for the gratification of caprices or predilections that need not be insisted upon. In fact, the atmosphere was surcharged with modernity, so much so that Norma, who would have walked about the suburb of Imperial Rome with cynical indifference, gasped a little when she entered it. One or two things actually shocked her, at which she wondered greatly. She regarded Mr. Asherberg with extreme disfavour, and winced at the women's conversation when they were cosily free from men. For the first day or two she held herself somewhat apart, preferring solitude on sequestered bits of terrace, where she could read a novel, or look at the grey hills that met the stretch of purple moorland. But gradually the sweeter tone of mind which she had brought with her lost its flavour, and having won sixty pounds from Asherberg, and having told the feminine coterie what she knew of the Winniard affair, 
she began to breathe the atmosphere without much difficulty. Yet occasionally she had spasms of revolt. In a corner of the drawing-room stood a marble copy of the little laughing fawn in the Louvre, put there by the late Baron, and every time her eye fell upon it, the picture of another fawn arose before her, and with it the memory of a homely man with bright, kind eyes, and she seemed to draw a breath of purer air. But she called the fancy foolishness, and hardened her heart. Still, had it not been for Theodore Weaver, the American man of affairs, she would probably have found some pretext for an abrupt departure. He alone was a personality among the characterless, vicious men and women of the house-party. Short, spare, alert, bald-headed, clean-shaven, clear-featured, he was of a type apart. Norma, who had a keen intelligence, divined in him from the first an adversary upon whom she could sharpen her wit, and a companion who would not bore her with dreary tales of sport, or the unprofitable details of his last night's play. And from the first Theodore Weaver was attracted towards Norma. Their lax associates, in spite of her engagement to Morland being perfectly well known, and, in spite of Morland's expected arrival, recognised their pairing with embarrassing frankness, and said appalling things about them behind their backs. For a few days, therefore, they found themselves inseparable. At last their friendship reached the confidential stage. Mr. Theodore Weaver avowed the object of his present visit to England. He was in search of a decorative wife. "'It ought to be as easy as turning over a book of wallpapers,' said Norma. "'And as difficult to choose,' said he. "'You must know what scheme of colouring and design you want.' "'Precisely. I don't find it in the books of stock patterns, either here or in America. And I've ransacked America.' "'Isn't the line—I believe in commercial circles they call it a line—isn't the line of specially selected duchesses for the English market good enough for you?' she asked, with a smile. He was about to light a cigarette when she began her question. He lit it, and blew out the first few puffs of smoke before he replied. They were sitting in Norma's favourite nook on the terrace, where he, solitary male who had not gone forth with a gun that morning, had been gratuitously told by an obliging hostess that he would find her. "'The American woman makes a good decorative duchess,' he said in his incisive tone, "'because she has to sweep herself clean of every tradition she was born with, "'and accept bodily the very much bigger and more dazzling tradition of your old aristocracy. "'She can do it, because she is infinitely sensitive and intelligent. "'But she is a changed creature. She has to live up to her duke.' "'He puffed for a moment or two at his cigarette. "'Do you see what I am coming to?' he continued. "'I am not an English duke.' I am a plain American citizen. No woman in America would make it her ideal in life to live up to me. I don't mean to be rude, interrupted Norma with a laugh, but do you think any Englishwoman would? I do, he replied. Not to this insignificant bald-headed thing that is I, but to what in the way of position and power I represent. An American woman would bring her traditions along with her, her superior culture, her natural right to be enthroned as queen— her expectation that I would take a back seat in my own house. It is I that would become a sort of grotesque decoration in the place. Now I may be grotesque, but I will not consent to be decorative. I fully intend to be master. I am not going to be Mrs. Theodore Weaver's husband. I want an Englishwoman to bring along her traditions. She would be naturally grand dame. She would come to my house, my social world, frankly the wife of Theodore Weaver, and ready to support the dignity, whatever it may be, of Theodore Weaver, 
just as she would have supported the dignity of Lord So-and-so, had she been married to him in England. "'You will find thousands of English girls who could do that,' said Norma. "'I don't see your difficulty.' "'She must be decorative,' said Weaver. "'And that means?' "'She must be a queenly woman, but one content to be Queen Consort. Your queenly woman with brains is not so easy to find.' I have met only one in my life who is beyond all my dreams of the ideal. Of course, the inherent malice of things screws her down like one blade of a pair of scissors to another fellow. "'Who is the paragon?' asked Norma. "'I wouldn't be fair on the other fellow to tell you,' said he. "'Is it sheer honesty, or the fear of being cut in half by the pair of scissors that keeps you from coming between them?' "'I think it's honesty,' he replied. "'If I can guess rightly, the scissors haven't so fine an edge on them as to make them dangerous.' "'They may be desperately in love with one another, for all you know.' "'They are delightful worldlings of our own particular world, dear lady,' said Weaver, with a smile. Thus was Norma given to understand that the post of decorative Queen Consort in Mr. Theodore Weaver's Fifth Avenue Palace was at her disposal. A year ago she might have considered the offer seriously— now that she felt secure of a brilliant position as Morden's wife, she was amused by its frank impudence. She held other laughing conversations with him on the subject of his search, but too prudent to commit indiscretions, she gave no hint that she had understood his personal allusion, and Weaver was too shrewd to proceed any further towards his own undoing. They remained paired, however, to their mutual satisfaction until Morden's arrival, when Theodore Weaver took his departure. In fact, the same carriage that conveyed the American to the station remained for a necessary half-hour to meet Morland's train, and Norma, who dutifully drove down to welcome her affianced, shared the carriage with the departing guest. She stood on the platform, chatting with him as he leaned out of the window. "'When shall we see each other again?' she said idly. "'Next month.' "'Where?' she asked, somewhat taken aback by his declared tone. "'I'm putting in some time at Chiltern Towers. "'I had a letter this morning from the Duchess "'asking me to come and meet the Princess of Heron Rothbeck.' "'They looked at each other, and Norma laughed. "'Beware of Her Serene Highness.' "'Oh, I've had dealings with her before,' replied Weaver. "'I reckon I'll get my money's worth. "'Don't you fret about me.' "'The guard came up and touched his cap. Uh, "'We're off now, miss.' "'She shook hands with Weaver, saying with a laugh,' "'I hope you will find that bit of decoration.' "'Don't you fret about that either,' he said, with a quick hard glance. "'I'm in no hurry. I can wait.' The train started, and was soon swallowed by a tunnel a few hundred yards up the line. Norma patrolled the platform of the little wayside station, waiting for Morland. The place was very still. The only porter had departed some whither. The station-master had retired into his office.' The coachman outside the station sat like a well-bred image on his box, and the occasional clink of the harness, as the horses threw up their heads, sounded sharp and clear. Nothing around but mountain and moorland. A short distance in front a ravine with a lazily trickling, half-dried-up mountain stream. Here and there a clump of larch and fir and a rough granite boulder. An overcast sky threw dreariness on the silent waste. Norma shivered, suddenly struck with a sense of isolation. She seemed to stand in the same relation with her soul's horizon as with the physical universe. The man that had gone had left her with a little feeling of fear for the future, a little aftertaste of bitterness. 
the man that was coming, would bring her no thrill of joy. As she stood between a drab sky and a bleak earth, so stood she utterly alone in the still pause between a past and a future equally unillumined. She longed for the sun to break out of the heaven, for the sounds of joyous things to come from plain and mountain, and she longed for light and song in her heart. She had been watching for the past few days the proceedings of a half-recognised irregular union. The woman was the frivolous, heartless, almost passionless wife of a casual husband at the other end of the earth, the man an underbred fellow on the stock exchange. She ordered him about and called him Tommy. He clothed her in extravagant finery and openly showed her his sovereign male's contempt. Norma had overheard him tell her to go to the devil and leave him alone, when she hinted one night, in a whisper that was meant for his ears alone, that he was drinking over much whisky. It was all so sordid, so vulgar, the bond between them so unsanctified by anything like tenderness, chivalry, devotion. Norma had felt the revulsion of her sex. What would be the future? By any chance like this woman's life? Would the day come when she would sell herself for a gown and a bracelet, thrown at her with a man's contemptuous word? Was marriage very widely different from such a union? Was not she selling herself? Might not the man she was waiting for go the way of so many others of his type, drink and coarsen, and tell her to go to the devil? She longed for the sun, but not a gleam pierced the leaden sky. She sought in her soul for a ray of light, but none came. At last, with a shriek and a billowing plume of smoke, the down-train emerged from the tunnel. Norma set her face in its calm, ironic mask, and waited for the train to draw up. Only two passengers alighted, Morland and his man. Morland came to her with smiling looks, and grasped her by the hand. "'You are looking more beautiful than ever,' he whispered, bringing his face close to hers. She started back as if she had been struck. The fumes of brandy were in his breath. Her hideous forebodings were in process of fulfilment. "'The whole station will hear you,' she said coldly, turning away. The imp of mischance rubbed his hands gleefully at his contrivance. Morland, a temperate man, had merely felt chilly after an all-night's journey, and, more out of idleness than from a desire for alcohol, had foolishly taken a sip out of his brandy-flask a moment or two before, when he was putting up his handbag. Norma collected herself, summoned with bitter cynicism her common sense to her aid, and made smiling amends for her shrewish remark. She suffered him to kiss her on the drive home, and strove not to despise herself. End of chapter 10